you have a copy of God's Word, please open up to John chapter 15. Also know there is a pew Bible there in front of you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, feel free to use that one. Also feel free to use the table of contents. If you have no idea where John is, that's okay. We're in the New Testament, so we kind of like the back third of the Bible. We're going to look at, you start getting into the New Testament, you'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. We'll be in chapter 15, so look for the big number 15, and then look for the little number 18. That's the verse where we're going to start. That'll help you kind of get to where we are going to focus in this morning. Remember, again, the Old Testament says somebody's coming, somebody's coming, especially as we get into the Advent season that we're going to start next week as we move towards Christmas. The whole Old Testament says somebody's coming, somebody's coming, this one is going to come. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say, somebody's here right now. And the whole rest of the New Testament says, someone's coming again. Who is that someone? The promised Messiah, the Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're in John's Gospel, which says, someone's here right now. And so we're looking at the life and ministry and message of Jesus as we have been looking and working our way through this Gospel account verse by verse from the beginning of the year. We'll take a little bit of a break next week as we pause for Advent, and then we'll pick back up. And so as you're opening up to John chapter 15, verses 18, and we're going to look at a few verses into chapter 16, I want to tell you a little story. There's a fable called The Frog and the Scorpion. You may have heard it before. I remember when when Rebecca and I used to work at Camp Greystone in Tuxedo, North Carolina, we had a guy named Jim Daddy. He was kind of the, the patriarch of the camp, great guy. And uh, his son was called Jim Boy, so we had Jim, Jim Daddy and Jim Boy. Jim Daddy would get up and kind of offer little words of wisdom. He called it Breakfast Club. And he would, uh, after, after you'd been there a few years, you kind of realized that he was basically just telling the same thing over and over again. But this is one of his, one of his greatest hits. This was the, the, the fable of the frog and the scorpion. And this fable first appeared in print in 1933 in a Russian novel called The German Quarter by Lev Nidoberg. And here's kind of how the story uh, functions. There's a scorpion who wants to cross a river, but obviously because he's a scorpion, he can't swim. And so it asks a frog to carry it across. There's this frog that comes up and says, hey, will you please give me a ride across the river? I obviously can't swim, and you can, so can I please jump on your back? And you can imagine, given that it's a scorpion, the frog hesitates and says, I don't really know about that because I know I'm not, you know, he's like, I'm not a smart guy. I'm not a doctor. I'm just a frog. But I do know one thing. I know that scorpions sting and getting stung by a scorpion is definitely not on my list of things to do today. So you can imagine he's a bit hesitant and he knows that the scorpion might sting it, but the scorpion then goes, hey, don't worry about this. I'm not going to sting you. Because if I sting you, we're both going to drown in the river. So don't worry about it. I'm not going to sting you. Just give me a ride across. We'll go about our separate ways. Everything's fine. The frog considers that argument. Sounds pretty sensible to me. And so agrees to transport the scorpion. And so the frog lets the scorpion climb on its back. And it begins to cross the river. Midway, about halfway out into the river, the frog feels a very sharp pain between his shoulder blades. And you can imagine probably what happened. The scorpion stings the frog anyway, dooming them both to destruction. And as the fable says, the dying frog asks the scorpion, Why? Why would you sting me? Why would you do this, knowing that we're both going to drown in the river? And the scorpion replies, Because I'm a scorpion. It is in my nature. 
That's what I do. Now, the moral of the fable, as you know, they always have some moral, is some people cannot resist hurting others even if they get hurt too. It's just in their nature. Any of you who are familiar with the cinematic masterpiece Ricky Bobby Talladega Nights, you will know that Ricky Bobby's dad, Reese, he's just this kind of good-for-nothing throughout the movie. And there's a scene at the end of the movie. Uh, Ricky Bobby is a famous NASCAR racer played by Will Ferrell, which, of course, you know, and he wears the Wonder Bread outfit. And they go to Applebee's one night, kind of at the end, where, you know, father and son have been reconciled, and they sit down, and they're eating together at the neighborhood bar and grill, Applebee's. And the little son says, well, this just feels like the perfect evening. And you can see Reese Bobby, he kind of twitches, and he just messes everything up. He ends up getting thrown out into the street. He's saying, you know, Applebee's has rats. You know, I found one in my Cobb salad. And they're out kind of fighting in the parking lot. And Ricky Bobby comes out and he's asking his dad, Dad, why would you, why? Why would you mess this up? And Reese Bobby says, it's, I'm no good. Whatever bone that people have that makes them act right, I just don't have it. I have to mess it up. It's what I do. And you think about what's going on here, and one thing that gets mentioned throughout the Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament is just this enmity that exists between the people of God and the rest of a fallen world that is living in open rebellion against God. This is not talking about, when we think about the world, we're not talking about all nation, tribes, and tongues, a la John 3.16. We're talking about an entire cultural and political system working in open hostility to God. Like the scorpion, like Reese Bobby, it is in its very nature to hate God. That's what we're talking about. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, there we go, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. We also hear about this world system and its open hostility against God in Romans chapter 1. It's kind of one of Paul's opening salvos here. Speaking of the world and this fallen nature and this fallen world that's living in hostility to God, He writes, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So you can see Paul talking about the the nature of this fallen world, the system that is against God. They're haters of God and absolutely opposed to Him in all things. And as we remember, this is nothing new. From Genesis chapter 3, Onward, God tells us about this larger struggle that exists between those united to sin and Satan through the sin of the first Adam and those united to Christ by faith in the second Adam. Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21 talks about this, the first Adam and the second Adam. And what we see in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is that there's going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. 
And the whole rest of the Bible is an outworking of that. But in the midst of that verse in Genesis 3.15, it's the first time the gospel's mentioned. And you think, that's Old Testament. That's, how's that happen? Because in Genesis chapter 3.15, there is a promise of a Redeemer who's going to come one day, someday, and crush the head of the serpent. And we see this opposition that exists, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, it plays itself out from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Revelation 20. It's the outworking of this. This opposition is fierce. And Christians throughout the centuries, if you think about it, have been hated by the world. Not because of what they've done wrong, although don't get me wrong, the church has done plenty of wrong and we need to repent of those things. But oftentimes Christians have been hated by the world for what they do right. There's an old phrase, no good deed goes unpunished. You may be familiar with that. Think about what God's people have been doing. The people of God over the centuries have been a tremendous blessing to the world around it. Think about the amount of charity. Nobody gives money like Christians. Think about disaster relief. When a tornado hits or a hurricane hits or there's flooding or a tsunami, who are the first ones in oftentimes? It's Christians. When everybody else is running out, we run in. You think about education. Think about all of the schools and colleges that were started by Christians. Hospitals that have been built. Clean drinking water that is being brought. Fighting for the life of the unborn. Art, music, etc. Think about all of this that exists, but yet the system of the world is just like that scorpion. It is, it is in its very sinful nature to sting even if it harms itself in the process. Because it hates God, it hates anything associated with Him, and that world system is willing to destroy itself as long as God does not get the glory. Think about last year, the height of COVID. Samaritan's Purse built a field hospital in Central Park in New York City to bring 24-7 life-saving medical care to one of the hardest-hit areas in our country for free. So we'll show up. We will treat anybody. We want to come to you at great expense to us. And we might even catch COVID too, as we're still trying to kind of figure out what this whole thing was all about. Samaritan's Purse said, we're going to go and we're going to build a hot, we're going to put a field hospital in the middle of downtown New York and we're going to bring life-giving care. But as you can remember, this, nat this national culture war broke out and we saw again this enmity and struggle bubble up again. They started this endeavor in April, and almost just a little bit more than one month later, they were forced to close due to their commitment to a biblical sexual ethic. Despite treating anyone and everyone, no questions asked, who wanted to come in. Because they held to a biblical sexual ethic, the world hated it and said, you have to shut down. The world gnashed its teeth at the people of God, even if it meant that even me, more people got sick in New York City due to overcrowded hospitals. They didn't care as long as the evangelical Christians weren't there. We want you out. Think about Chick-fil-A, Little Sisters of the Poor. They've all received similar treatment for refusing to compromise on their religious beliefs. You can probably think of others who have faced the world's scorn. Now you think, why should I care? How does this relate to this passage? It does, I promise. Remember last week, we looked at the relationship of fellow branches, Christians, united to the same vine. So what are relationships between the branches to be marked by? 
That's what we looked at last week. This week, what we're looking at is the relationship of all those branches united to the same vine to the world around it. What does that relationship look like? That's where Jesus is talking about today. Now, often Christians are surprised when they face the scorn of the world for doing their best to love their neighbors, offer hope, and tell others about the good news of Christ. But as we'll see, even by looking at the life of Christ himself, we're not to be surprised by this. Actually, it's to be expected. Now, with that in our mind, let's go to the Word. John chapter 15, starting in verse 18, as we think about the relationship of the vine and the branches to the surrounding world and culture that is hostile towards God. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes... Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I'm thankful for that. May we receive it by faith. Let's ask the Lord for help in this. Please pray with me. Father, we're grateful for your word. Every bit of it's true. And we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would take these words, help us to receive them by faith, and then apply them to our hearts and lives, O Lord. Father, redescribe reality to us this morning and help us to see the, just how precious and wonderful Jesus is. Father, may you be pleased this morning as we look to your word and sit under, sit at your feet for just a few moments. And we ask these things humbly in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you probably picked up when reading that passage that the world hates God and his people. Pretty, pretty straightforward, right? You know, you read that passage and you again, you just remember this enmity that exists between the people of God and the surrounding world and culture that is set against Him. And as we consider the relationship of the vine and branches to the world this morning, I want us to see two things. These are our two points this morning. I need to give a hat tip to Gordon Ketty for this outline. I was reading his commentary and he brought these two points up and I was like, bingo. I can't do it any better than that. So hat tip to you, O Gordon Ketty. So we're going to see these two things. Reasons for the world's hatred. And our second point, responding to the world's hatred. 
see, that was a good outline. I was like, thank you, Gordon. Okay, so reasons for the world's hatred and then responding to the world's hatred. Those are going to be our two big points this morning. Let's look at that first one. Reasons for the world's hatred. This is basically chapter 15, 18 to 25, if you're following along. Now, back in chapter 7, verse 5, we're told that at the time, even Jesus' siblings did not believe in him, and so they belonged to the world, and they were loved and accepted by it. And Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Now Jesus speaks to his spiritual brothers, his disciples, and reminds them and us that this is still true in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, why are Christians hated by the world? Why? Because they were chosen out of the world by the same Christ that they also hate because they no longer belong to the world and its system. If you've seen The Matrix, you have like the blue pill and the red pill. You know, if you take the blue pill, you just kind of keep cruising along. But if you take the red pill, suddenly you're going to get to see behind the curtain. And what we see here is that Jesus has chosen his folks out of the world. Call this his electing grace. He has chosen his people out of the world. And because of that, they are united to him. Remember, we talk about the doctrine of the union of Christ. And because of that union, we who are also united to Christ, by default, the world hates Christ, the world hates God, so they hate us too. Because we're united and we live differently or we're called to. Here's what Ketty said in his commentary that was helpful. He said, make any kind of stand for Christ, even with a loved one in your own household, and it can be very costly. Be different in the workplace, steer clear of dirty jokes and foul language, and refuse to join in pilfering supplies and other shady goings-on, and you will soon find out that you don't belong. But be one of the boys, and you will discover how the world can love its own. The very hatred of the world should be to the Christian proof positive that he's not of the world, but has been drawn out of it. Really helpful quote there. And so you think from the world's standpoint, Christians are traitors and even seen as subversives to the world system. Their worldview and lifestyles are a living stand in sharp contrast to those of the world, and they hate it. Look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I mean, think about how Christ has called us out. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're called to be different. And because of the Spirit's work in our hearts, you know, our, our affections get changed. Or the trajectory of our life gets changed. Everything gets changed by the power of the Spirit. And it, it lies oftentimes in sharp contrast. You may have even felt this in your workplace, in your family. You may have felt this, different, that, this difference that exists and in sharp contrast to the world, the world just hates Christ. It hates Christians. I mean, think about the bullets that start flying when someone claims a biblical sexual ethic in our day and age. Boy, the knives come out just for claiming what the Scripture clearly teaches and say, no, I actually believe that. I affirm that. There was a video on YouTube that was really, really disturbing to me that I saw This is several weeks back now. We're talking about how the bullets and the knives come out, even just for claiming a biblical sexual ethic. 
It's put out by an LGBTQ plus kind of pro group. And basically what it said is, if we can't get to you, we'll convert your children. Don't worry, we're patient enough. And it was the song that was saying, we'll convert your children. We'll convert your children. Just you think about just the wickedness that's involved there. And we say, no, we claim a biblical sexual ethic. And they say, it's okay, we'll get to your kids, just wait. But you think about how that says, we'll convert your children. The thing that I am grateful for this morning, and I hope you are too, is that Jesus is the one who does the converting. And he does that by drawing sinners who would never choose him on their own and were willingly going over the cliff to himself. Jesus says, I chose you out of the world. This is sovereign election and effectual calling. He gives them a new heart, regeneration, a new moral record, forgiveness and justification, a new family, spiritual adoption, a new way of life, sanctification, and a new destiny, glorification, all by the grace of Jesus Christ. Think about all that has been done. If you are here and you trust Christ, all that has been done on your behalf, when you were willingly throwing yourself off the cliff, you loved your sin and you wanted to stay in it. You were willingly throwing yourself off the cliff. God stepped in and he gave you a new heart and he gave you a new way to live and he gave you a new family and he gave you a new hope and he gave you a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That is his work. Once we are truly united to the vine, this doctrine of union with Christ, you never see your life the same way. And by the Holy Spirit's work, you have new goals. You have new affections. You have a new way to see your money. A new way to see your family, a new way to see your job, a new way to see relationships, a desire to spend time with other believers. I was talking to somebody who said, I used to never, I never thought twice about going to church. And then once the Holy Spirit got a hold of me, and once Jesus became precious to me and he became my Savior, I just longed to be with other people of God. It just reminded me that I wasn't by myself. You think about how if all of that is true, which it is, grace changes absolutely everything. It changes everything about our lives. We hold that with great hope, and the world hates it, gnashes its teeth at you, just like it did with Jesus. And so, we should expect nothing less. Look at verse 20. We're just going verse by verse. Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than its master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And you think, why? why? Why is this enmity that exists? Look at verse 21. He says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Why? Because they do not know him who sent me. Most people will admit that there's at least some sort of God or spiritual force out there. Ketty calls it a practical atheism hiding behind the facade of false religion. But start proclaiming the unique truth claims of Christianity and saying that Jesus is the only Son of God and Savior of sinners and watch the knives come out. We've seen this even throughout the Gospel of John. What has gotten Jesus in trouble consistently from the very beginning? I'm the Son of God. That's me. I came from the Father. I am the divine Son of God. And the knives come out. And you think about in our culture, 
Watch what happens when we start claiming the unique truth claims of Christianity. No, we believe there's one true and living God. And there is only one Savior of sinners. There's only one name by which we can be saved. It's Jesus Christ. Watch what happens when, when you start proclaiming that. Think about Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, the message of God's existence is not hidden. But the scripture says that we are spiritually dead. We are unable, unwilling to admit the truth about ourselves and the world around us. And so what is that truth that we do not like in our sin to admit? The truth is is that we have sinned against a holy God and we need a Savior. Because we can't save ourselves. That's the truth we proclaim. But the problem that comes up is we think that the problem's out there not in here, in our hearts. We think the problem's external stuff. That No, I'm a pretty good person. The problem's out there. The problem's not here in my own heart. And that's where we get it all mixed up. Ketty again said, The depth of the problem is seen in the fact that they hate Christ without a cause. We even see this in verse 25. And here's what the ESV study Bible said about verse 22. He said, They would not have been guilty of sin does not mean all sin. But the specific sin of rejecting the supreme revelation of God that came in Christ himself, a sin that is particularly manifested in hating Christ. Look at verse 23 and 24 as we just move through here. Sinning against Christ is also sinning against the Father because they are one. Again, here's what Ketty said. A person who does not know the real Jesus does not know the real God. However traditionally biblical his language may be, his quote-unquote God is fake, a false deity of his own invention. And so as we sit here and we think about the nature of who Jesus is and the claims that got him in trouble, where he said, I'm the unique Son of God. I am the only name by which you can be saved. And we think about those unique truth claims that Jesus claims about himself. As you sit here this morning, do you actually believe all that God says about himself? Do you believe all that God says about himself as he has revealed himself in Scripture? Do you accept what Jesus says about himself? Do you accept what Jesus and what God has revealed in the Scripture about how salvation actually works? Do you believe and rest in that this morning? Or are you just fashioning a God in your own image so that you can control it? You read portions of the scripture and you go, He doesn't really mean that. It doesn't really work like that. What you're doing is just functionally fashioning a God in your own image. That's idolatry. We need to repent. Do you really know Jesus? Do you? Do you accept Jesus on the claims that he makes? Or do you just follow yourself dressed in a Jesus costume? Do you really believe what Jesus says about himself? We must accept and submit to God and Christ on his terms, not our own. Because when we do that, we are really, really on thin ice as far as missing the gospel. 
Dr. Michael Horton wrote a great book called Christless Christianity. Remember, we've already talked about churchianity, how we can worship the church more than Christ. He says the name of his book is called Christless Christianity. Here's what he says. Regardless of the official theology held on paper, moralistic preaching, the bane of conservatives and liberals alike, assumes that we are not really helpless sinners who need to be rescued, but decent folks who need good examples, exhortations, and instructions. See, here's the thing. If you downplay the holiness of God, you downplay the cosmic rebellion of your own sin against that holy God. You see, we hated God. Enemies of Him. You think, oh, the the problem's out there in the world. No, 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 ladies and gentlemen. The problem's right here. Again, there was that person that wrote in, I think it was Chesterton, that says, hey, what's what's the biggest problem facing our world today? And he simply wrote back and said, I am. I'm the problem. You see, Jesus didn't die to make good people better. Jesus died to make spiritually dead people live. That's the gospel. Jesus didn't die to make good people better. Jesus died to make dead people live. You don't need three ways to be a better fill-in-the-blank, or I hear six ways to be a better this, that, and the other. You don't need that. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. We need a Savior. You don't need three steps to be a better this, that, and the other. You can't be apart from Christ. Think about our memory verse. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I don't stand up here and say, here's three ways to be better. I say, here's Jesus. That's all I got. That's what we do each and every week. Throw the fastball down the middle. Fastball. Jesus, the gospel. You need a savior. And so you think about, how can we actually know God in this way? He has to call us first. To choose us out of the world. John chapter 10, tail end of verse 3 into 4. Jesus speaking, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. John chapter 10 verse 14, again Christ speaking. He said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. You may be familiar with this hymn, how sweet and awful is the place. And not awful like, but awful like full of awe. A-W-E-F-U-L. How sweet and awful is the place. It asks this question, Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Here's the thing when we wrestle with the gospel. The biblical gospel message will never make sense to you until you see where you truly were apart from Christ, dead in your sin, marching off the cliff, and loving every second of it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and verses 4 and 5. There's a big shift that happens in the midst of these passages, and it is amazing news. Because again, we're thinking how the world, the world, we think, oh, that's not me. Yeah, it is, apart from Christ. That's what we were, apart from Jesus. Shaking our fist at God. Enemies of God. But yet, by His grace... He's changed us and He's chosen us. He's called us out from that system into His family. Listen to Ephesians 2. And you, 
were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Everything we just talked about, every bit of it, that was us apart from Christ. That's us. But... Verse 4 and 5 come in. Here's what verses 4 and 5 says. But God, but God, not but you, not but your efforts, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. This is unbelievably good news. A God who calls dead sinners to himself by grace, out of the system of the world, into his glorious family. He says, I love you, and I'm going to give you a new hope, and I'm going to give you a new righteous record. I'm going to justify you. I'm going to give you a new trajectory to your life as my spirit is at work in your heart. And the things that you used to, you used to love, you'll now hate. You'll begin to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. As you're being conformed more and more to the image of His Son, the sanctification. And not only that, instead of the future of you throwing yourself off of a cliff into hell, I'm going to give you the hope of eternity with me forever. By grace. Is this thing on? You think about all of that and what is going on. It's just amazing news. We shout this from the mountaintop. And the world hates us for it. But what the world hates is our only hope. It's all we got. If we cling to ourselves, there's no hope in that. If you're looking to yourself to save yourself, stop. Get off the treadmill. It's not going to work. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. We all need Jesus. So we think about this. Second point real quick. First one was long. Second one's quick. How do we respond to the world's hatred? It says the world hates me and it's going to hate you because it hates me. How do we respond? So what? Verse 26, notice the entire trinity present in the promises found in verses 26 and 27. Look at what verses, those verses say. Again, Jesus speaking, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. Did you notice Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all right there mentioned in those verses? These promises were made to the disciples, but they extend to all those who, just like them, were called from the world and united to the true vine, Christ. So these promises are our promises because we've been called into that family. And notice why Jesus tells them and us this. Look at the first one of chapter 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. The Greek word for stumble or fall away here is scandalizo. It's where we get the English word scandalize from. Here's two quotes by Ketty. He was super helpful on this passage. You probably picked up on that. He said, If they had not been told honestly about the difficulties ahead, but would have been allowed to think everything would go smoothly and painlessly, and then were suddenly confronted with the real truth, they could be scandalized and lose all hope in the mission. Jesus was quite open about the prospects. You read the passage and you go, yeah, it's pretty, pretty brutally honest there, Jesus. Thank you. 
Again, here's what Ketty said. Jesus never promised anybody a rose garden. He makes sure his disciples count the cost, and he arms them against the sea of troubles that they will have to face in their mission. Discipleship to Christ is a commitment arising in response to what God has already done and is continuing to do in a person's life. Jesus calls us to follow him with our eyes wide open so that we will not be lulled to sleep by the siren song of the world, which is always singing, trying to call us away. Here's what Keller said, Tim Keller. He said, Mark's called Christianity the opiate of the masses, but it's more like the smelling salts. Passages like this are like the smelling salts. Jesus says, if the world hated you, know that it hated me before it hated you. (laughs) Smelling salts. Oh, that's the reality on the ground. We must not compromise the gospel. Regardless of the political and social pressure that comes from the outside world, because Christ calls us to be faithful. Christians, set your jaw. Trust Jesus. Stiffen your back up. We have to be faithful to his word. I have no idea what will happen to the people of God in the future, in America and the rest of the world, but here's the thing. I do know that Christ promised to never leave us nor forsake us, and he sits on the sovereign throne of heaven even as we sit here today. Remember what Daniel Hightower said a couple of weeks ago. There is this eternal heavenly worship that is going on behind the curtain right now. Jesus sits on the throne right now. He is sovereign right now. I have no idea what the future holds, but I do know one thing, that Christ has said, I'll never leave you, forsake you. The gates of hell will never prevail against the church, and you have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and I will hold you in my grasp until the end. You take that to the bank. That's a reason to get up in the morning, is it not? You think about what's going on. Notice where this threat comes from. Notice also where this threat comes from in verses 2 and 3. We're almost done. The threat also comes from within the religious community. Did you not notice that? They might put you out of the synagogue. These are the religious folks. Dead, moralistic religion hates the gospel of message of grace because it takes the emphasis off of your sinful, hardwired emphasis on earning. It takes us out of the salvation equation. Bear moralistic preaching. Go be a better Christian. Go do this. Go do that. Earn your way in. We love that, and churches get full of that. People that are going, yes, give me the 10-step way to be a better whatever. Dead moralistic preaching hates the gospel because the gospel looks at you and says, you can't do that. Take yourself out of the equation. Jonathan Edwards, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's what you bring. That's what I bring. That's what you bring. I don't bring righteousness. I don't bring perfect moral record. I bring my sin. That's it. Here's what Horton said again. He said, the law tells us what to do. The gospel tells us what God has done for us in Christ already. Theological liberalism hates the truth truth lines drawn in the sand by Christ because they don't give us the wiggle room we want to define God on our own terms. Again, well, here's what J. Gresham Machen said. He said, it's no wonder then that liberalism is totally different from Christianity, for the foundation is different. Christianity is founded on the Bible. It bases, it bases upon the Bible both its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. What do you want your life based upon? 
the word that never fades, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, or just the whims of sinful people? How you think and feel God should be in this current moment. I'll take the steady, please. Thank you very much. I'll take what's solid. I'll take the rock. So we think about this. How do we respond this morning? So what? Why should we care? Let's, let's bring this thing in. John chapter 16, verse 33. We'll get to this in a few weeks. Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. What do we do? Press on in faith. Why? Because Jesus is on the throne. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. Paul writes, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. So what? What are we called to do? Press on in faith. Why? Because eternity in heaven is secured. A future reality secured for you because of Christ. It is sure and steady. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Last passage. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, not ourselves, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What do I want you to do? How do we respond? Same way as the other two. Press on in faith. Why? Because you are never alone. And if you are in Christ, you will never be alone again. Look around you, ladies and gentlemen. Look around at you at the other faces of blood-bought sinners whom Jesus has called out of the world and put you in this family. What a blessing. What a blessing. You will never be alone again. And even if we're not there, you have the Holy Spirit. You'll never be alone again. So press on in faith, regardless of what comes. Trust Christ. Lean into Him. Don't be surprised when the world gnashes its teeth at you. Know that it did it to Jesus first. And He volunteered for the job. For you. It's amazing. He came and put on flesh and was mocked and betrayed and beaten and nailed to a cross. And He volunteered for it. For you, so that you could be chosen out of the world by grace when you were willingly throwing yourself off the cliff. But God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. That's a reason to get up in the morning, is it not? It's a reason to keep pressing on in faith. Take heart. Look to Jesus. Why? He has overcome the world. And He rules and reigns on the throne of heaven and He promises to come back to get every one of us. And I say, come Lord Jesus, come right now. But even while you tarry, help me to trust you. Straight out of the Scripture. I'm here and I'm coming back. And we say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the truth of it, O Lord. As we stand in awe of all that You have done, on our behalf, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive. 
You've chosen us out of the world, not because of anything that we have done, not because we were awesome, not because we had our lives all put together. Lord, help us to remember that the best thing that will ever happen to us has already happened to us in Christ on the cross. Father, help us to repent of us trying to do it ourselves, of our self-salvation project. Lord, help us to repent of all the ways that we're trying to fashion you in our image. Father, help us to just take you as you have revealed yourself to us. Oh Lord, help us to submit to you, knowing that you have done all things on our behalf. You have secured this way for us. Lord, you truly are a wonderful, merciful Savior. You are a precious Redeemer. You are our friend. Lord, thank you that you came and you rescued our souls. Lord, and you have drawn us out of the pit, out of darkness, into light. And you've placed us in your family. You've given us a reason to get up in the morning. You've given us a hope that will never be shaken. And you have prepared for us an eternal weight of glory that we lean into. Come what may, O Lord. Help us to not be surprised by the scorn of the world. Help us to continue to reach out in love and grace and mercy with servant hearts. Lord, even as they scorn us, help us to love as you have loved. Lord, help us to lay down our lives, Lord, for the sake of your kingdom. Help us to think less of ourselves, O Lord, and more of you because of all that you have done. Lord, you really are that good and your gospel really is that sweet. Seal it into our hearts and remind us of that. We're going to forget it as soon as we leave the parking lot. And we need you, O Lord, to remind us of this. These things we ask humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen.